0: We are gonna launch into the Gospel of John. We did last, we did last week, uh, if you missed it or if you weren't here, out of town, maybe you're just getting back. We launched into our series on the Gospel of John and we were thinking about, as we moved through the Gospel of John, this idea that John gives us his sort of statement of what he's up to uh, in this Gospel towards the end of the book. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, I'm recording all the works that I did here in this Gospel, everything that I just wrote to you, I've recorded all these works and all these words of Jesus, all the miracles he did and the things that he said about himself. I've recorded these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you would have life in his name. So that's his ambition. That's his desire is he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing we would have life in his name. And so the way we thought about that last week is that really what John is doing is he's inviting us into a conversation. He's inviting us into a conversation where he's gonna say, hey, I want you to consider some things that I'm gonna tell you. I want you to weigh them carefully and think through them. And so, you know, if you are exploring faith in Christ, this gospel really has you in mind. I mean, it really has its sights on you to say, we want you to see who Jesus is and we want you to really give consideration to what he's saying about who he is. But if you're already, if you've already come to faith in Christ, it's not just a gospel that's written with an idea of, hey, if you don't believe, I wanna show you who Jesus is so that you might believe. It's also meant to reinforce for those of us who are in the faith, who are in Christ Jesus, what it's meant to do is, is deepen your trust that what you have believed is trustworthy, that the one in whom you've believed in is who he has claimed to be. So I don't want you to sort of check out at the door if you're a follower of Jesus and say, well, you know, this is really to convince someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus. It's also meant to reinforce your faith because the scriptures tell us that we need to persevere to the end in faith, right? Right? We need to persevere to the end in faith. And so John also has you in mind as he invites you into this conversation that you would persevere to the end in faith in the one in whom you have believed, who is able to keep you and guard you, the one who is above all others. So, as we get in now to the text, we're gonna look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 today, and then we're just gonna respond in worship today. That's why we didn't sing a lot on the front end. You know, that's really kind of the order of how life works, right? I mean, honestly, worship often, <clears throat> the best and sweetest worship, is always a response to good theology, good belief. We believe, we learn, we grow, and then we respond to what we know about God with worship. So we're really just mimicking life here today as we kind of reverse our course a little bit. Uh, Normally we worship as a way of preparing ourselves to receive God's word. That's a good thing to do too, but what a good thing to respond to God's word in worship. So we'll do that today as well. Well, John, as he launches in, I'm just going to read these 18 verses to you here in just a moment. But John, as he launches in, you know, you might expect the way to ease into a conversation that you want to have with folks is you sort of subtly move towards the point you want to make, but John is not about that. John wants to bring us to, I mean, right from the very beginning, he's gonna launch in with just a, a grand statement about who Jesus is. He wants us to see the true nature of Jesus. Uh, I have a friend who talks about doorknob conversations, and I love this, I've noticed it to be true. He says, have you ever noticed that when you're with a group of people or you're with someone and you're having a conversation, he says, often, particularly if it's maybe a tough subject, and you know that they want to talk about it, and you find that in the course of the conversation, you're kind of talking about any manner of things, and in the back of your mind, you're going, I know they want to talk about this thing, but we're not kind of getting to it. And it's when they get their hand on the doorknob to leave that all of a sudden they bring out the thing that they really wanted you to know all along. And so he's he's really, this is a friend of mine, and I've really appreciated this wisdom. He said, just notice what people say when their hand is on the doorknob because that's maybe the most important thing they wanted to say the entire time. You know, it feels safe, right? And my hand's on the doorknob, I'm gonna say it, and then I'm out, right? And so, you know, I've learned to pay attention to doorknob conversations. John is not a doorknob conversation kind of a guy. He's gonna tell you, maybe it's a doorknob conversation as he's coming into the house, He's walking in to tell you something and he's, he just is going to say, let me just tell you, lay out the case for you and then I'm going to try and prove it to you in the chapters that follow this one as I show you the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus. But before I even show you any of his works or any of his words, I just want you to hear who he is. So that's what John is up to. Now, in all the other gospels, see, here's an interesting fact for you. Mark begins his gospel, Mark, when he's writing his gospel. So you know the gospels in the Bible, if you don't know, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those books retell the story of Jesus' life and kind of give a different angle, each one of them a different angle on Jesus' life, his three years of ministry. So Mark begins his gospel with Jesus' ministry. It really kicks in right as Jesus is, a grown adult, <clears throat> and he's beginning his ministry. Luke begins his gospel with the telling of Jesus' birth. And he's like, hey, let me tell you the miraculous circumstances around when Jesus was born. And Matthew begins his gospel even a little further back. He traces Jesus' lineage all the way from Abraham up through David to show that Jesus is David's son, and then all the way up through Joseph and Mary, his parents, and into Jesus. And so each gospel kind of gets a little further back. Well, John, not to be outdone, is gonna begin his gospel, not at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not at the birth of Jesus, the beginning of his life, not at the lineage of Jesus earth in an earthly sense. He's gonna begin his gospel before time begins. He's gonna take us all the way back. So you wanna know who Jesus really is? Let me tell you. So let's open our Bibles if we have them to John chapter one and let's read verses one through 18 together. We'll have the words on the screen. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So let's pray together. And Jesus, we read these words about you and we ask that you would show us the truth of your word, who you really are. We wanna see you today and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the person of Jesus. Help us to see him and may our hearts leap towards him, be drawn in towards him. I thank you, Father, that in this Word from John, you feel no need to justify or prove who you are, you simply tell us. We are the recipients of generation after generation of faithful followers who have told us about you and handed down the message of the gospel one generation to the next. What a great inheritance we have. Now we thank you, Jesus, show us your glory today. Help us to treasure you more. That's my prayer for my people today. Let them treasure you of all things. I'm gonna bring your word forth with clarity and conviction. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as you look at this text today, we have a simple proposition, a simple driving idea, and it's this. John wants to tell us, that Jesus is God, he wants you to see the true nature of Jesus is not just a human nature, but it's a divine nature. And it goes back before time began. And so I just wanna walk through the text today with you. Can we do that? I want to walk through the text, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to see the richness of the one in whom you've believed, and if you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to see, in particular, some implications to what this gospel teaches and what it says. I want you to weigh them and think about them as we continue this conversation. So let's look at the first five verses, and then in verse 14, as we think about this idea of Jesus as the word of God. Jesus is the word. So we find in the first five verses, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was a life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the question becomes why would John, right here we hear that the, in the beginning was the word and later on in the text you notice that it connects the word to Jesus. So right out the chute you might read it and go, well who's the word? This word that's in the beginning What's he talking about? And later in the text, John identifies that it's Jesus that he's talking about and giving him this name, this title, the word of God. And so we ask the question, well, why would he use this idea of the word? And here's what John means when he says, in the beginning was the word. What he's saying about Jesus is this. Jesus is the complete and final statement that God wants to make to people about himself. Jesus is the complete and final message of God to humankind. Everything we need to know about God, we learn in Jesus Christ. He is the message of God. And so... When John says Jesus is the word, he's playing on an interesting idea. So you need to understand that this is not a fresh, this title, the word, is not a fresh thing in John's world. It's something that both Jews and Greeks, who are the two audiences John has in mind, would have had an idea around. And what John is doing is he's taking their idea and saying, yes, but even more. So for a Jew, the word is how, Jesus, is how God created the world. The word represents God's creative power and strength going out from him. So when John begins, in the beginning was the word, where is he taking us back to? He's taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was what? God. Right? In the beginning, God created, is what we hear in Genesis 1.1. And so the second, if you're Jewish, you read this text, you go, oh, in the beginning, what he's making a claim to is that this word existed before anything else existed. This word existed and so the Jew immediately goes, oh, okay, I get it. The word is the creating power of God moving out from him. Now, to a Greek, the word is something different. To a Greek, there's this idea, the word in the Greek is, is logos. And that word, essentially, to a Greek person means this. It's the idea of an impersonal force that dictates, like a power moving through the universe that dictates the direction of the universe, that, to a Greek, is what the word is. It's not a personal thing, it's an impersonal thing, and yet it moves through the world. Think of the force in Star Wars, okay? That's the best, the closest I can come, but the idea to the Greek is something like the force in Star Wars. It's this sort of imperceivable power moving through the universe, and so John takes the cue and says, yes, this word I'm talking about absolutely does dictate the direction of the universe. And this word I'm talking about absolutely is the, the creative power moving out from the Father, the one and only God, if you're Jewish. but he's more than that. And so he says, "In the beginning was the Word." Here's what he wants us to see. So the first thing we see is this: is that Jesus, the Word of God, is eternal. Jesus, the word of God, is eternal. So he says, in the beginning was the word. And he's taking us back, as we've already said, to Genesis chapter one there, when nothing existed. And what he's claiming is that Jesus existed before anything else existed. Now here's what that means. Because you might think, okay, is that significant? It's incredibly significant. Because he's saying that Jesus has no beginning, that he is uncreated That he has no, there is no point at which Jesus did not exist alongside the Father. That he has always existed from eternity past and he will continue to exist into eternity future. The fact that he never had a beginning is part of the reason, church family, we have confidence that he will also have no end and therefore because he has no end, we will also have no end. Our very hope for eternity future rests in the fact that we have placed our hope for that future in one who extends back into eternity past. Do you follow me? In the beginning was the word. A couple of simple words with deep weight. He is also saying, church family, not only that Jesus is eternal, that he has no beginning, he's uncreated, he's also saying he is self-existent. And to say a being is self-existent is to say they have life In and of themselves, no one else has to impart life to them. In just a few verses, we just read it, a few verses down from verse one, it says, In him was what, church? Life. And that life was the light of men. In other words, what he's saying is the animating power that causes you to be a living being right now. Do you know that you're alive? I hope you do. All right? I just, there was just an article recently published, I think it was in the Washington Post, about a group of scientists, not philosophers, scientists who are hypothesizing that it's possible that we are all a computer simulation and nothing more, right? You saw The Matrix and you thought, who would actually believe that? Well, there are people who are moving on that idea, that we are nothing more. Philosophers used to say, this is is old in philosophy, if you study philosophy, that perhaps we're all just someone's dream, You've heard this idea? Nope, okay, all right. I'm reading my philosophy I guess. So scientists have now come and taken the same idea and said perhaps we're not a dream but perhaps we're just a computer simulation because we have computer simulations now that can do these massive things for millions of people and you know what, if we can run these kinds of simulations then what's to say we're not just a simulation? We're not a dream, okay, we really exist. And what God's word says here is that we exist because Jesus has the power to bring about life in and of himself. He possesses life. The animating force that makes a being alive belongs to Him. Now, these are big claims about a person who walked on the earth, and we're going to get here, get there in just a moment. But the first thing is that Jesus is eternal. Now, look at the next phrase. In the beginning was the word, so Jesus is eternal, he's uncreated, and he's self-existent. Then the next phrase, and the word was with God. Now, this is important because the second thing John is telling us is, even though I'm claiming that Jesus is uncreated and eternal and self-existent, which any person would read and go, well, then, The only kind of being that's like that is God. So perhaps what you're saying, John, is that Jesus is another name for the one God that we've known all this time, particularly if I'm Jewish. Perhaps what you're saying is it's kind of looking like at a different angle at God. And he says, no, no, no. The word in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. In other words, the word related to God. So he is distinct from God. He is not just another way of saying God. He is distinct from God. Do you follow that? And the word was with God. Another translation of that term with is toward God. And so a lot of theologians say what John is saying there is he's an intimate relationship with God. He is for God. He is toward God. In the beginning was the word, eternal uncreated, self-existent, and the word was with God, related to God, was toward God, is not identical to God in that it's just another way of saying God the Father. Now the next phrase, as if to immediately jump and go, but also, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word what? Was God. This word who we're gonna find out later in the text, is Jesus, is in the beginning. He possesses all the attributes of God. He's with God, so he's distinct from him, and he also is God. This is what John is trying to tell us, is that this this is a radical departure, particularly if you're Jewish, from your understanding up to this point of who God is. This idea of a Messiah, rescuer, of a Christ. Remember John said, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's a familiar idea to a Jewish audience. I get it, we're waiting for a Christ, we're looking for him. And now John is gonna say the one you were looking for is not only a human rescuer, he is God. And it's only because he's God that he can do the rescuing that you need him to do. And so he begins with perhaps the greatest words that begin any book of the Bible. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Three phrases just steeped in power. Do you see it? This is what he's trying to communicate to us. Now the fifth thing that we find is that Jesus is not only in the beginning, not only is he with God, not only is he God, now we find that Jesus is the creator of all things. So it says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So go back to what I said about Jesus being uncreated and eternal. This is another phrase, another thing that John is giving us to remind us or to reinforce this idea. Because he doesn't just say, all things were made through him, right? And you could think, well, perhaps God created Jesus and then after God created Jesus, then Jesus created everything, right? But so that we don't slip into that error, what John tells us, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, in other words, if it was made, he made it. He can't make himself and then make other things. So the idea there is that Jesus has always existed. That's what John is trying to tell us. He's helping us avoid the error of believing that Jesus ever had a beginning point, that he was somehow not eternal. That's what he's doing. And then that he is the creator of all things. And then the last thing, when we think about Jesus as the word of God, all this wrapped up in a simple phrase, the word of God. The last thing we see is that Jesus, up to this point we've seen his divine nature, his eternal nature, his uncreated self, his self-existent nature. And then the last thing we see is that Jesus is human. Jesus is human, look down at verse 14. After that rich statement about all that he is, in verse 14, and this is the ultimate statement of the whole text, everything points to this statement. Everything in this text. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now listen church, I know we're we're familiar with the idea of Jesus as God in the flesh. I know that you've heard this numerous times. Perhaps you're new to church and you might even have heard this and understood this, right? Because you've been around other you've been around Christians before and you've heard this idea. But I want you to understand what John is trying to do so desperately for us. I was praying for you this week and I was just thinking, God, you you got to help us see it because he wants you to see He loaded all of that immense, rich theology at the beginning of this, and and he just tried to paint the grandest, highest picture of Jesus that he possibly could for you. Did you see that? He's done everything in his power to say, he is exalted and high and transcendent, and he's one with God, and he's existed forever. And there's nothing about him that is not beautiful and glorious and perfect. This one who extends beyond time in both directions, the one who has never been created, this one became flesh. And he dwelt among us? You and I are supposed to be shocked by that. Do you remember if you've read the Gospels, um, when they're in the garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come for Jesus and they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and there's, I, I still, like I want this one in heaven on video replay, you know, if they have that. I just wanna see this moment because Jesus just says, I am he and what does it say happens to the soldiers? They just fall down, which is crazy. No one's ever made me fall down by saying Three words. He says, I am he, and they just are, they're just, they fall over. That's the picture I picture when I see what John wants for us here. He's trying to lift your view of the word of God who is Jesus so high that when he then comes to this ultimate phrase in verse 14 and says, he became flesh. He dwelt among us. That you would fall backwards and say, what? How? Who is like this? How does one like him become one of us? But Friends, that's exactly what John is telling us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and there are massive implications to that. If the word that's eternal and uncreated and self-existent and the creator of everything that's ever been made, if that one who is divine, If he has become one of us, if he's become a human being and dwelt among us, then can the world ever be the same after him? No. The world can never be the same. Now, the text is going to go on. We've already read it, but it's going to go on, and it's going to try and just unpack for us some of these implications that this word has become flesh. And that this word is the self-existent, uncreated, creator of all things. And I wanna point you to a couple of those. So we're supposed to be astonished at the true nature of Jesus. But let's look at a couple of the implications. The first one is this. We'll look at verse four again. The first one is that his fingerprints are everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. Um, So my wife and I... (laughs) We have three kids, and man, do they make a mess of the house, okay? Like if you have young kids, does it ever drive you crazy that you can clean the playroom, right? And it's like two seconds later, the stuff is everywhere. Legos are so much fun, but they are my nemesis, right? I do not like stepping on Legos. It's like my least favorite moment of my day, every day, and yet it is part of my day, every day, that I will step on some Legos. That's gonna happen, right? And we've taken to saying this because I'm kind of a guy that likes things in their place. I I can totally admit that I can be a little anal about that and be like, I like everything where it goes. And the thing we remind ourselves is, honey, someday she reminds me, I should say, I probably don't ever remind her. Honey, someday these Legos aren't gonna be there anymore. You know what that's gonna mean? It's gonna mean the kids aren't here anymore. These are the signs of life. These are our kids' fingerprints on our house. You know the smudges on the windows, windowsill, because You got to eat peanut butter and then go stick your hands right on the windows. That just has to happen. Someday they won't be here anymore and these signs of life will be gone. That's a good reminder for me. In the same way that my kids' Legos are strewn all over the house, in the same way that I got the peanut butter smudges on the windows, God has left his fingerprints all over his creation. He's left his fingerprints all over his creation. So follow me, look at what verse four says because it says more than you might have picked up at first glance because verse four says this. In him was life, so we already saw that means that Jesus, the word, is self-existent and he's the creator of everything. He has the animating power to make something alive and if he doesn't make it alive, then it, can't, it won't be alive. In him was life, but then look what it says about that life. And the life was the light of men, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does John mean that the life that that Jesus, the word of God, possesses and is able to give and impart, what does it mean that that's the light of men? We talked about this a little bit last week, but in John, when we see the light, what we see is that, saying the ability to clarify what is good and true and beautiful, right? That's what John means when he talks about the light When he says Jesus, later we're gonna find Jesus is the light of the world. And later in this text, we're gonna say the light, the true light was coming into the world, talking about Jesus. But when it says that the life that Jesus is able to give is the light of men, what he's saying is this. Jesus, by virtue of him creating everything, has left his fingerprints on everything as a light pointing you back to him who created it. Theologians call this, when when we talk about the creation, They talk about it in the term general revelation, that we look at the trees and the mountains and the hills. We look at them and we say, this is evidence that there's a God who created it all. But there's more than that because you and I are created in the image of God. Whether we believe in him or not, God's word tells us we're created in his image. And the fact that we're created in his image means we have his fingerprints on us whether we believe in him or not. Do you hear me? And so there are aspects of who we are in our very nature that point us back to him. That's what this text means when it says, his life is the light of men. And the darkness has not overcome it, which means no matter how much sin there is in the world, it cannot undo the fingerprints of God pointing us back to him. My friend, if you don't believe in God, you have to wrestle through some questions, like, well, why do I have a sense of morality in me? Like, why do, why do I have a sense of right and wrong? Why does that exist in me? I would argue, at least from a Christian worldview, here's why you have that. You have that sense of moral right and wrong and a need to determine which is which because you bear the image of God who dictates us what righteousness and truth is and also what evil and wickedness is. He declares that. That's why, I mean, we could go through all these aspects of humanity. Here's another thing, church, family, Christians, the image of God is in every person you talk to. His fingerprints are on them. He's already at work, he's already moving. All you have to do is look for it. All you have to do is look for it. One of my favorite things to do, and I hope this doesn't, if you're not a believer, I hope this doesn't sound like some strategy to get you, I just wanna point out this reality to people because I think it's so important. And so my friends who are not believers, I just love to compliment them when I see the image of God in them. I love to point to where where I see God's nature in them because he's there, his his fingerprints are there. That doesn't mean he's living and dwelling inside of them because they haven't received him, they haven't invited him in, they haven't trusted in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that his fingerprints aren't there and that those fingerprints are the light of men. And so I trust that God is at work in every person I meet. There's not a person I've ever met that God wasn't at work in their life and that he wasn't trying to, through a variety of means, in particular through the life, the animating power that he's placed in them that has made them alive, try to point them back to him so that they would see him and return to him. That's what verse four means when it says, in him was the life, and that life was the light of men, and the light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can I just encourage you today to remember the darkness has not overcome it. The next implication that John has for us is really simple. It's in verse 10 through 13, and it's that because Jesus, the word of God, has become flesh and dwelt among us, we're all gonna have to decide what to do with Jesus. You know, like any other world religion, you can choose to ignore. I mean, quite honestly, you can just kind of say, okay, that's fine, it's fine for that group of people because they're all, they all have human agents. They all have human authors. They all have human people that, that you know, brought the, these philosophies and ideas and worldviews into play. And so you can just, you can, you can choose to just kind of go, if I choose to not deal with that, I can just choose to put it aside and ignore it and not deal with it. Do you know that you're not gonna be able to do that with Jesus? Because if Jesus is the eternal, uncreated, creator of all things, and he has become flesh, then everyone must do something with him. Everyone must decide what to do. And so if you're not a believer, we just want to give you that heads up, I guess in a sense is what I'm saying. I want to give you the heads up that you won't have the luxury of just saying, I'm just going to choose to do nothing with Jesus. To choose to do nothing with him is the same as saying I reject you. And we, just, we need you to hear that. We want you to kind of be aware of that. As you enter this conversation with us in the Gospel of John, how he's going to take us and show us the works and the words of Jesus, you need to understand that as you're, as you're processing and as you're thinking and as you're considering, and I would hope too, even praying God illuminate, show me who you are, as you're doing that, just recognize you will have to come to a decision. You won't be able, it's, it's kind of like coming to a fork in the road. And When you come to the fork in the road, you have to pick a direction, right? And Jesus is the fork in the road. When you come to him, you have to decide. You can't just stand in one spot and choose to do nothing. And that's what, look at what verses 10 through 13 say. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So what we're seeing there is that there's a group of people who, even who would perhaps have been most likely to have recognized him because they had the prophets and they had the law, they had the Old Testament. They had all the reason to identify him for who he was, the son of God, the Christ. And they missed him, many of them. And the world didn't recognize him. So some will not recognize, some will not receive, some will not see who this word made flesh is. But then after that, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Everyone must choose. And John just tries to lay out for us very clearly the results of our choice. To choose to not receive Jesus, to choose to miss him, is to miss then what John says, those who receive him will have. And did you see the rich reward for those who choose him? But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Now I love that John uses the word there, the right. When, you have, when something is not a privilege, but it's a right, can it be taken from you? It's not supposed to be able to be taken from you, right? It's your right. And in Jesus, not by nature of your goodness, but in Jesus, you now have a right to be called child of God. It's yours. And you can, you can own that with authority because the scriptures tell us it's your, it's your right. It's not, your, not just your privilege. It's your right, having received Jesus, to be called child of God. And the reason you have that right is because he has caused us to be born again. Right, we're gonna find this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three where Jesus is gonna talk very specifically about what does that mean? Essentially, here what, here's what John is saying. is He's saying he has caused you to be, to be reborn spiritually. You were dead spiritually and he took your dead spiritual self and he made you alive. And because you've been born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but you've been born of God, That's what he says here. You have been born of God, which means you have been born in a way in your spirit unto God now so that you relate to him as his child. That's what he's saying. Last implication is this. We can have a daily experience of closeness with God that is better than we might know. And this is, believer, this is where I want you to really hear me. Because I wonder how many of you are settling for something less than the kind of relationship you could have with God. And I don't mean to say you're not redeemed, you're not saved, but I wonder how many of us just feel disconnected from God. We wonder if he hears us when we pray. And I'm not talking about seasons of doubt and struggle. We all have those. Can we just say we all have those? We struggle. struggle. And seasons, but I'm just talking about a regular, trage- a regular trajectory of life that recognizes who you are in Christ and the richness of the depth of the relationship that you can have with God through him. Let me show you how deep it is because look at what he says here. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, you read that and you think, okay, We've seen the glory of God in the word become flesh. But you need to understand that like, particularly if you're a Jewish person reading this, your mind is immediately gonna go back to Exodus 33. And in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses says to God, anybody remember, show me your glory, which is a really gutsy prayer. Show me your glory. And God's response is to say, I'm gonna put you in the cleft of a rock and I'm gonna put my hand over you. I'm gonna pass by and then you're gonna see my backside because no man can see me and live. Sinful beings cannot behold a holy God. It's just a general principle to live by, okay? And Moses Praise that, and then after God rewards him and says yes, and allows him to see just, just a fading sense of his departing glory, Moses' face shines with glory. And then just a few verses later in Exodus 34, God declares his name to Moses. It says, The Lord, the Lord, gracious. And forgiving, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And those words, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness from Exodus 34, is what John is alluding to here when he says, We have seen the glory of God full of grace and truth. So the very one that told Moses, You cannot look on me and live, the very one who said that now says, In Jesus Christ, you are able to behold the glory of God. In the word become flesh, you now see the glory of God full of grace and truth. The very one who could not be looked upon, you may now approach boldly. You may now look at. You may now see. Why? How? Because he's clothed you in his righteousness. And when you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you can behold the glory of God and not be consumed. Do you see how much he's inviting you in? When when we don't pray, when we don't come to the Lord, when we don't meditate upon his word and his truth, we're essentially saying, I know you've given me access to the thing that no one ever had access to before. That's the greatest thing ever and that's you but I don't care to have it, thank you. He is saying something radical when he says, in the word become flesh, you behold the glory of God full of grace and truth. He's saying you can look at God and not die. Because of Jesus, the word become flesh. He says the same thing essentially in verse 18. He reminds us no one has ever seen God in verse 18. The only God who's at the Father's side. Now, listen to this. He's not saying saying no one has ever seen God, the only God. He's saying no one has ever seen God, period. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's who? Jesus. He's claiming Jesus is God there again. The only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, also distinct from him, has made him known. Jesus makes you able to see what could never be seen before. Now the last thing in terms of the kind of relationship we can have with him that we might not be taking advantage of, we find in verse 16, it says, and from his fullness, talking about Jesus, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what you might not catch as you read that. That word grace upon grace, you have to what does that mean? What does it mean that we received from the fullness of Jesus the word become flesh? What does it mean that we've received grace upon grace? Another way to translate is we've received grace replacing grace. And the best way to understand that because of what happens in the next verse, in verse 17, where it talks about the law, and it says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, is to understand that the first grace he's talking about is the grace of the law, referred to in verse 17, and the second grace that replaces the first grace is the grace that we have because the fullness of the word become flesh, Jesus Christ. Now let me see if I can make that incredibly plain here. Here's what he's saying. The law was given by God in the Old Testament and it was an act of grace because what the law did, the grace the law gives you is the knowledge that God is holy and you are not and you need a savior. That's the grace of the law. The grace that replaces that grace is the grace that comes in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, who doesn't just say you're a sinner in need of a savior, but says I will do the saving by clothing you with my righteousness, that's the grace that we've received in Jesus. The grace of the law is replaced by the grace of Jesus and the gift of his righteousness. Does that, are you following me? So go back to what we just said. It's the same thing. The kind of relationship you can have with God is the kind where you can come to him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus because you've received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. You are now a person clothed because of Out of the fullness of his deity, Jesus poured his righteousness on you and into you because he's done that now. Do do you see how much he wants you near him? Do you see how much he wants you to come and be with him and to know him? The word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace, not a grace to condemn. Oh, I'm a sinner in need of a savior but a grace to rescue. Oh, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. There will be no third grace needed. There is no grace replacing grace, replacing grace. There's only the grace in Jesus Christ. It is the final grace that you or I will ever need. It's time to worship the king together. Let's pray. I'm gonna ask our team to come up. So Lord Jesus, we've heard your word. We've received it. And now the right response is that our hearts would shout forth your praises. We are not rightly ordered people, Lord, until we are rightly ordered towards affection and worship for you. And so we offer it to you now. May what stirs in us right now be an eagerness to bring our praises to you, the word who was in the beginning, the word who was with God, the word who was God, the word who has become flesh and dwelt among us. and We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Oh, how we wanna behold you, how we want to worship you. You are worthy. You are worthy. Receive the praises of your people. In the name of Jesus, amen.